CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I got to tell you, I felt like I woke up this morning in my hometown of Chicago that I was standing at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive where the wind comes roaring in off Lake Michigan and really freezes you to the bones. It's uh, 26 degrees where I'm coming from right now. And just to give you a little weather forecast uh, or, or current conditions, up in Rome, it's 28 degrees, Columbus, 29, Albany, 31 Savannah's a balmy 37 degrees, so we're feeling the chill here in uh, the state of Georgia. People sometimes say to me, boy, you must be glad to no longer have to deal with Chicago winters. And I, and I said, well, I kind of miss them until days like today come along, <laughs> and I realize I'm very happy to not be up there anymore. Okay, we have a lot to talk about on the show today, so let me get right to introducing our panel, Patricia Murphy who is, of course, a political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column that you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and oversees the jolt, which you can get at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. Good morning, Bill. I want to pass on a quick compliment that my parents, who are Murphys, loved your St. Patrick's Day show. Oh, how nice. Thank you. That's, of course, a big day for, the for I'm sure, the Murphy family. Well, thank you. We had a lot of fun doing that show, so thank you for saying that. Um, Kendra, Kendra King-Mommen is uh, back with us uh, today, professor of political science at Oglethorpe University, also associate uh, provost at uh, the, uh, the university. Um, and Kendra, you have another title that I wasn't aware of. You mentioned it just before we went on today. Yes, I am a mom. I have an almost 22-month-old who joined us for a little morning. Yeah, your son, Maximus. I was thinking about a title at the university, but I think mom is far more important, whatever. (laughs) He concurs. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Amy Steigerwald is with us, professor of political science at Georgia State and about to become the sole chair of the Department of Political Science at Georgia State. Um, Thank you for being here, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm just trying to stay warm. Yeah, and we're really pleased that Rick Dent, vice president of of, um, Matrix Communications, joins us again uh, today. How are you, Rick? I'm fine. I'm like everybody else. I'm I'm cold, but I'm fine on this Monday morning. Yeah, and you're a real Southern boy. I mean, you grew up in the Deep South, so you don't like absolutely this not okay. not at all. <laughs> Give me sweat right. and heat. Yeah. Okay, Patricia. Let's go right to the Trump story. Um, as we know, at about seven twenty on Saturday morning, uh, Donald Trump who apparently is his his phone must have gotten stuck. You know, the all caps lock must have, 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 you know, he couldn't turn it off because he tweeted in all caps that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday. He has no reason to believe that, apparently, but he said it anyway. And he called on his supporters around the country to protest, protest, uh, protest. So let's start 
with that and talk about what's happening in New York. But I think the reason we want to talk about that is there's no question that as President Trump, uh, former President Trump talks about witch hunts in Manhattan, he's also sending a shot across the bow, certainly at Fonnie Willis right here in Fulton County. Yes, I think he's sending this message to any of the numerous prosecutors who are looking at Donald Trump for possible criminal charges. And there's lots of them for lots of di different potential crimes that he may or may not have committed. Um, I think as troubling as that was, because it certainly reminded a lot of people about his tweets ahead of January 6th when he told uh, his supporters to be there because it will be wild. Um, as troubling as that is, House Republican leadership has really joined in um, this effort to push back on the specific prosecutors investigating Trump. Um, now, Kevin McCarthy said he does not think people should um, should be violent in their protests, that that's not necessary. Um, but he did say that he and House Republicans are looking at calling members of the Manhattan DA's office in front of Congress to testify about this investigation, which raises all kinds of um, questions of intimidation of, quote, weaponizing government, which is what the Republicans have created a separate committee to investigate Democrats for. Um, it just raises all kinds of um, concerns. And I think Fonnie Willis's investigation, whatever happens with the Manhattan DA in terms of pushback, we can expect that much and potentially more for Fonnie Willis. Rick, let's pick up on uh, what Patricia pointed out in terms of uh, especially Kevin McCarthy, but also other Republicans in the House, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we'll get to in a minute. But um, uh, the tweet that uh, uh, McCarthy sent out initially was this. Here we go again. An outrageous abuse of power by a radical DA who lets violent criminals walk as he pursues political vengeance against President Trump. Um, you know, it's you can say later that people should be peaceful and calm. But when you start characterizing what's going on in Manhattan the way he did, uh, it's it's a pretty mixed message, isn't it? Well, I, I don't even know if it's mixed uh, as opposed to being clear. You know, number one, you would think that uh, Donald Trump would have learned a valuable lesson about calling people out to protest after January 6th, but apparently not, number one. And uh, then number two, look, the, their narrative is is going to be absolutely clear, and that is, uh, this is politically motivated. It's Democrats doing this. Um, the charges are weak. Why aren't they um, um, concentrating on other priorities? And um, you know, the big concern that I have, and uh, God, I'm I'm in no way uh, standing up for what Donald Trump has done. But boy, when you cross this line of indicting presidents, my fear is it's going to open a Pandora's box. And in the future, we're just going to put a target on every president that is elected in this country. Well, let me, you know what, Kendra and Amy, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And we'll talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene in a moment, because I don't know that Rick means this, but somewhat implicit in what he's saying is that he does think this is a political prosecution. Are you saying that, Rick? I mean, why are you opening a Pandora's uh, box you make, if you've got you a former president who's done something illegal? 
I think you can make I think you can make the argument and the Republicans certainly are going to make the argument and a huge number of voters are going to believe the argument that this is politically motivated. The timing, do these kinds of crimes really raise to the level that you should go after a, a, a former president? Um, those are the, the message. That's the messaging that Republicans are going to use. And I think a lot of people are going to believe it. Yeah, I, I agree with Rick. I agree with Rick in terms of the timing of this. Um, we've got seven years in between when this allegedly happened and now these potential charges. I mean, this is better than an episode of Real Housewives of Atlanta in terms of all the players that are involved in, in trying to, you know, do a flow chart of, chart of who's who. Here is the, of the problem, and I agree with Rick 100 uh, percent. In doing this, we open up the door for so many people to look backwards um, to see if there are other indictments that could potentially happen to even Democratic leaders. And so I, do, I don't think this pushes us forward towards democracy. I think this pushes us closer to mayhem. Wow. Amy? The other part which is difficult about this is that the particular uh, indictment that we're all discussing right now which is, let's be clear, one of many potential indictments that may be coming down from different jurisdictions around the country, is also legally probably the weakest case of the group. And that's the other part of this that I think is actually super important, uh, which makes it almost problem. It, it, it raises the specter of it being easier to make the argument that it is in fact a sort of politically motivated prosecution rather than one which is sort of necessary. It's got this long time frame. It's a more it's a more difficult argument to make. In part, what they're also trying to do is they're trying to link it up so each of the things are really only misdemeanors, but they become felonies if you can link up multiple ones, which is its own. Uh, kind of legal argument that would be a little bit difficult. And so it therefore then means that if that one starts to fall apart, it makes any ones that might come later and might actually be much legally stronger cases also more susceptible to the argument that they are potentially simply political prosecutions rather than based on sort of strong evidence of misdoing. And, and that's where Fonnie Willis and her probe comes in. Patricia, let me read just a little bit first, though, about this New York case, because it's very complicated. Um, and, and this comes from the New York Times reporting on the story. Uh, they're reporting that the case may include a potential charge of falsifying business records under an article of New York penal law, a conviction for a felony version of bookkeeping fraud carries a sentence of up to four years. But then let me read this. To prove that Mr. Trump committed that offense, prosecutors would seemingly need evidence showing that he had knowingly caused subordinates to make a false entry in his company's records with intent to defraud. In other words, the check that first Michael Cohen wrote to Stormy Daniels, which was then covered apparently by Trump's business is what they're talking about there. Did the Trump organization, did Trump order that they cover up the repayment to Michael Cohen um, and, and, and log it falsely in their books? And that's not even, the, there's more 
to the complexity of this. And so that does lead to what Amy suggests. Fonnie Willis has a completely different case. She may not have enough to uh, indict Trump. We don't know. But her case certainly, which could be for RICO violations, is a much uh, potentially stronger criminal case. Yes. And when you talk about the unprecedented nature of potentially arresting a former president, um, it's not to say that it should never happen in some circumstances, but are you really going to do it for bookkeeping fraud? Um, That just seems kind of ridiculous. Uh, The Manhattan DA also has multiple instances of people being pushed onto the subway, um, of people being attacked um, on New York City streets. Uh, There is just a lot on his plate that doesn't involve bookkeeping fraud. And is he bringing every potential bookkeeping fraud charge? Is he going, is he following all those to an indictment? I I don't think so. Um, The Fonnie Willis case, I think, is totally separate because if you do find that a former president tried to criminally overturn his own election um, to the danger, uh, physical and otherwise, of, um, of individual citizens in your state, in my mind, almost how do you not indict that? If you don't get indicted for trying to overturn your own election criminally, and there are criminal elements to that, um, what would you get indicted for? So I, I think the fact that there are so many investigations swirling, including the Department of Justice Special Counsel, which feels like it could have many tentacles going in a million directions. I think it's very hard for the public to discern them individually, which means they are all in danger of falling to the lowest common denominator of um, evaluation by the public. And I think that's the real concern here. Uh, Kendra, we should point out that uh, in the aftermath of not just that tweet, but a subsequent tweet, again, his uh, phone caps lock seemed to be stuck on all caps. He tweeted out uh, more about the uh, witch hunt. Um, The Atlanta Police Department has said they are preparing to provide security. They won't say specifically where, but you've got to assume it might be around the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office. There's nothing coming out of Fonnie Willis right now. But protesters uh, encouraged by Trump uh, could show up at any any one of a number of locations. And the Atlanta Police Department is taking it seriously enough that they've got a plan for dealing not only with potential for protesters to get out of hand, but also to make sure those protesters have the right to assemble peacefully and not be harassed by anti-Trump people. Absolutely. I think that we've learned from Cop City and the protests there. We weren't necessarily prepared, so we had to be reactive. Whereas now, I mean, you know, these these capital letter tweets, um, they're, they're little mini dissertations, right? He's letting you know, like, I want you to stand up for me. So I think it's unwise for APD not to be prepared. At the same time, I, I think we have to let this play out a bit more. Um, we have to see what's going to happen in New York with the DA. Um, if, if, if this is just a lot of talk to stir people up um, or if something will really happen. And so I, I think we've got to uh, look at these indictments potentially to see where what's going to happen next. Um, this is this is you know honestly from a political perspective um, as a political scientist and I, I can't speak for Amy, but it's hard to keep up with all of this. And it, in a, in an era where there's so much political malaise, to see these um, I would say microaggression issues rise to the top, it's a little bit disappointing. Just to be 100% honest. Amy, uh, we, we Trump says he's going to be arrested tomorrow. 
Uh, there's no reason to suspect that's true. In fact, we now know a number of news organiza- organizations are reporting that this morning, uh, the grand jury in New York is going to hear from a guy named uh, Bob Robert Costello. Um, Costello had been initially uh, Michael Cohen's attorney. He was going to work with Michael Cohen. They ended up having a falling out. When Trump refused the invitation to appear before Alvin Bragg's grand jury in Manhattan, um, he did say, his his legal team said, well, we want you to hear instead from Robert Costello because Costello's job when he goes in today is going to be to refute and to cast dispersions on Michael Cohen's uh, ability to tell the truth. Yes. I mean, obviously, Michael Cohen has already pleaded guilty uh, to a number of instances, which obviously makes the sort of concern of where this is coming in. And more broadly, there is the fact that certainly this one is now, I mean, in some ways, if, if one wants to sort of look at it, strategically speaking, focusing in on this particular potential indictment as the one to cast dispersions on is actually a politically smart thing to do because it is the weakest of all the cases. So now everyone is talking about it. It's top of mind. It is pushing uh, away the other ones that are happening. Fonnie Willis, of course, in her case, which is dealing with right the calls that were made to the Secretary of State and now turns out the Speaker of the House, which we hadn't known previously. Uh, you also have um, what, it, as Patricia mentioned, what's going on in the Department of Justice. And so in that sense, it's elevating what is in fact kind of a bookkeeping mistake um, or can be easily cast like that. And it makes these other potential indictments also seem weaker, which is problematic because, I mean, I think Patricia put it nicely. And so that, that is an issue. And I think it's one where it makes it really difficult. And there is a real, a really, a real question, I think, of whether or not the Manhattan DA should kind of think about the timing and let some of these other uh, cases go first. All right, Rick, um, let's, you're the political consultant on the panel today. Uh, among the, the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, including, of course, that the Democrats are all communists, it's time to throw the communists out of uh, power. Uh, I'm not sure she understands what that means. Her, her colleague, Elise Stefanik, the New, the New York Republican, talks about them as socialists, so they, they're not getting their language straight on this. They got a mixed message there. But, Rick... Uh, one of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene does say, of course, is this is going to make Trump's bid for re-election uh, even uh, stronger. Uh, you think that's true? You know, as someone who has worked with uh, a lot of political figures in my career, some facing indictments, uh, tax problems, adultery, and I actually do have some quality uh, clients, too. Um, (laughs) let me just say this, being indicted or accused of adultery does not help your campaign. It just doesn't. Um, even if you get acquitted, all the dirt that comes out, um, can get you. I will make this point though. If there is a political figure in the United States who can be the exception to the rule, And Lord, Donald Trump has been the exception to every rule I have been taught in my career. If there is a (laughs) candidate out there who could get a boost from being indicted, it could be Donald Trump. 
Okay. Um, Patricia, before we leave the subject, again, I want to bring it back to Fulton County. Um, this is pure speculation, of course, so uh, bear with me on that. What, what do we imagine is happening in the district attorney's office as they watch to see what's happening in Manhattan, how it might change their calculus on what they're going to do about bringing indictments, when, what the timing might be? I mean, we don't know the answer to that, but, but it's got to be something they're thinking about. They're not going to be uh, uh, persuaded by the threats of protests, obviously, but but what do you think this might mean as Fannie Willis considers the ti- timing of what she does? Well, sure, timing is one of um, the things that Fannie Willis does have control over. There are a lot of pieces of Donald Trump's world that she does not have control over. Um, we have been told not to expect, at first we were told it would be imminent, then we were told that is legally imminent, not reporter imminent, which is very different. Um, so to expect something in the, later in the spring. Um, and I think that they are going to work if they are looking at indictments. They first of all need to hear from a real grand jury, not I mean, not a real grand jury, a traditional grand jury um, uh, to recommend those indictments. Uh, the special grand jury was simply an investigatory body. So she'll need to hear from an actual grand jury. And then um, also, I think, run every trap on a potential case against Donald Trump and his associates, if it does look like indictments are likely, and it feels like it does, um, to make sure that this is a conviction that they believe that they can bring home. Uh, the very worst thing would be to have an ongoing um an ongoing uh, prosecution and uh, court uh, event and trial and not get a conviction. And so I'm quite sure they are going through every potential downfall before um, moving forward on something like this. Yeah, you know, um, it's easy for us to uh, think we understand, well, he told Brad Raffensperger, find 11,000 plus votes. Um, He called the governor, he called the Speaker of the House at the time, David Ralston. Um, But in fact, what the DA's office has to do is go through all of this and and line it up with actual statutes in Georgia law that may apply in all of these cases, Patricia. And that's a wholly different matter. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Willis has told me about it doesn't matter what the case is. She's not going to bring it unless she knows or believes 99% that she can win it. And so um, election law is something that is very rarely tested here in the state of Georgia, certainly not against a former president, um, certainly not in combination with racketeering. And so um, it's a very specific area of case law. There is not a lot of state precedent to to work with. And so um, it really does require an immense amount of sort of study ahead to envision what the result might look like. All right. Um, thank you for that. Um, we're going to move on, but why don't we get the first break of the show out of the way and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Rick Dent, Kendra king Mammon, Patricia Murphy, and Amy Steigerwald join me for today's Political Rewind. During the break, Chase McGee let me know that there are some people out there who have connected with us saying, who says there's going to be an arrest tomorrow? And, and in fact, let's be clear, only one person has claimed there's going to be an arrest tomorrow, and that's uh, Donald Trump. So there is nothing to substantiate that except that he is rallying his forces all right, I, I want to talk about a story, Patricia, that, again, the New York Times uh, broke at Peter Baker over the weekend, and um, it involves uh, former President Jimmy Carter. I'll just set it up very briefly. Um, of course, in 1980, uh, President Carter was running for re-election. His Republican opponent, Ronald Reagan, the hostages were still being held in Tehran, Carter was doing everything he could to try to release them. And certainly his uh, team had hoped that the release would come before the election. For a very long time, there have been little bits and pieces of evidence that perhaps the Reagan campaign sabotaged the Carter team's negotiations to have the hostages released to assure it wouldn't happen before the election. And now Peter Baker brings another piece to the table. He talked to a Texas political leader at the time, back then, named Ben Barnes, who was a, 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 a mentee of former uh, Texas governor uh, John Connolly. And Barnes told Peter Baker that, in fact, he went on a trip with Connolly across the Middle East and that it became clear to him later that the intention of this trip was to get the Iranians to keep the hostages. They'd get a better deal after uh, Reagan won election. Yes, that story was just totally shocking to to think that um, if this did happen, and the New York Times was quick to point out, it's very hard to verify this account because many of the people, most of the people involved have since passed on. Um, but that um, American operatives would uh, encourage the Iranians and other Middle East governments to ensure that the American hostages were held longer um, because it would be better for the Iranians in the end. Um, it, it is mind boggling. I was wondering what some of the hostages were thinking as they were reading that story this weekend to yeah. think that they were there one day longer. Um, and again, if that is what happened and that is the reason the Iranians did it, I think it has always been um, on people's minds, the timing of the release of the hostages, just as um, Reagan was sworn in, you know, was that done out of spite? Was it done to send a political message? Or in this case, was it done with pre-planned um, orders. It's just, it's hard to say exactly. Um, President Carter in his memoirs says that he always believed that he lost that election specifically because of the hostage crisis, um, not because of the many other crises unswirling, including the energy crisis and the gas lines. Um, he really felt like the hostage crisis just swallowed up his entire campaign and he had no way to win with that um, with that crisis ongoing. And so, um, I it, it again is just shocking amount of detail and storyline here that I think other people will be waiting through for quite some time to try and um, corroborate it as well. 
Uh, because there were other bits and pieces of this floating around for quite a long time, Congress actually launched an investigation and came to the conclusion there was nothing to this. But, Amy, Ben Barnes is, as Peter Baker points out, uh, not some some flaky character. He was a leading Democratic pol- politician. There were people who thought he could be governor of Texas at some point. And I want to read, Amy, uh, what, what, what he said to Peter about why— He was coming forward now. He's now 85 years old. He said, history needs to know that this happened. I think it's so significant. And I guess knowing that the end is near for President Carter put it on my mind more and more. I just feel like we've got to get it down some way. Amy? Yes. And the other thing, of course, that complicates it is that Barnes himself was a Democrat. And so he's, you know, at least in the story that Peter Baker, you know, his comments to Peter Baker, that he's very um, sort of cognizant of the fact that uh, he says he didn't want to be seen as sort of a a Democratic Ben or Benedict Arnold, right, that he didn't recognize sort of he didn't know entirely what the purpose was until they got in those meetings. And then, of course, he was sort of on some level, aiding and abetting the nominee from his own party and not being reelected. Um, I think what is sort of intriguing is um, that uh, Peter Baker did a really great job of also following up, for example, with uh, some of the congressional staffers who worked on the task force, who all say that, for example, they had never heard of um, in any of these trips of Connolly. And so on some level, part of, you know, the uh, analysis and the conclusions that they reached didn't have any of this information. They didn't even know that there was uh, these trips being taken. And so they aren't able to sort of judge whether or not it happened, but it also sort of gives light to sort of given the information they had, they reached the conclusion they did, but this is information that they didn't have. It wasn't that they had yeah. heard about it, investigated it, and said it didn't have claims. Instead, they hadn't heard it at all. Connolly's name wasn't involved. Barnes's name wasn't involved. And so it really does give light to um, what was, in fact, a hugely important story at the time and suggests that it was not simply about the Iranians, but, in fact, um, actions taken by other Americans. Rick, um, let me uh, take this one step further. Um, Barnes acknowledged to Baker that uh, he didn't keep notes. Uh, he, he didn't have lots of proofs about the fact that this is what Connolly was doing. Uh, but he said that at the time he did tell four people about what had happened. One of the people he told was Tom Johnson, who, the former president of CNN, publisher before that of the L.A. Times. So I connected with Tom yesterday um, because uh, Tom does, in the article, confirm that he had this conversation with Barnes. So let me tell you what um, Tom Johnson <laughs> said to me. He said, if true, John Connolly's mission, as told by Ben Barnes, is reprehensible, unethical, illegal, about as low as a campaign could possibly go. Par- Barnes telling the story now indicates it had to be a matter of conscience weighing on him I don't know what is factual and what is false. So Tom Johnson acknowledges that he had this conversation, but never was quite sure uh, what to make of it, but now characterizes uh, what happened as being reprehensible. Well, you know what? It is reprehensible. My, my first question would have, to Tom would have been, well, did you look into it? 
if someone told you that and you didn't find anything, um, you got to also remember the context of this happening. Twelve years earlier in 1968, and we now know this as a fact because there were notes, Haldeman's notes, who was the chief of staff for candidate and then President Nixon. <clears throat> they killed the Paris peace talks to end the Vietnam War because their fear was they would lose the election if Lyndon Johnson was successful. So 12 years earlier, we now know for a fact that the Republicans <laughs> and President Nixon did that, but it took 50 years to figure it out and to prove that President Nixon knew. So the big question here is not necessarily did Connolly do it, but what did Reagan know and when did he know it? And we may never know that. Kendra? Yeah, I think that if this did happen, right, this is politics 101. Power, politics is about power. Power is about who gets what, when, where, how, and by what means. And while this, this feels like it could potentially be a conspiracy theory, um, to Rick's point, we, we have been able to uh, look into history um, and see that these things have in fact happened. My question is what, what political benefit is it to an 85 year old to clear his conscience, right? There isn't much. And so it begs the question that this potentially is could be true. Um, and, and then I just think this speaks to, you know, what we know about, about about politics and management, right? There are people who, because of a title, have legitimate power, but there are also people with the expert power that are able to go in behind the scenes, sometimes unknowingly, to make these types of deals. Here's the thing. We know that if Carter was able to bring those hostages home, that rally around the flag effect that would have produced and the hearts of the American people would have assuredly caused him to win that election. The fact that he didn't cost him that election. Um, just to speak to Rick's point, I did invite Tom Johnson to be on the show this morning. Um, he declined. I would love to have him uh, come on and talk more about that because, Rick, I think you're right. What, as president of CNN, um, might Tom have done in terms of having an investigation um, move forward on this? Um, I, I think Tom's a little uh, reluctant that at this point, this has come to light. And Patricia, my sense of it was that he, although he spoke to Peter Baker, I suspect that he uh, later thought, ooh, I'm not sure how this makes me look. If you're listening, Tom, we'd still love to have you come on the show just for a couple minutes and talk about this. To close that this out, Patricia, let's just say, um, this is just another one of these stories. It's a big one. But as we watch Jimmy Carter uh, go through this process of uh, uh, end of life, uh, there are going to be so many stories, not maybe with this kind of political significance, but so many stories about Carter, uh, the legacy of the good and the not so good during his uh, tenure as president, I think. Yeah, and I think um, we'll probably hear similar stories about his tenure as governor of Georgia, how he was elected governor of Georgia. Um, and... Uh, the way that he lost that election in 1980. Um, so I think we will absolutely continue to hear these kinds of stories. Um, the fact that this gentleman came forward before Carter died, so interesting to me as well. He didn't mm. wait until um, the president had passed away. And I completely agree with Kendra. There, It, it seems like such a human response to 
to use this information in this way. There is no political gain at this point, all of these years later. Um, but in the moment, I don't, I think it, we routinely see um, either Democrats working against Democrats or Republicans working out against Republicans, um, <clears throat> truly out of sheer spite after they've lost an election to somebody. And so um, that is the one thing that really did ring true to me um, in this. Rick, yeah, I was going to just say one one quick thing. You know, the, these aren't just campaign dirty tricks. I, I sent 100 pizzas to my opponent to mess up his day. This fundamentally changed the history of the United States. Think about this. No Richard Nixon, no Watergate. No Watergate, you probably don't have Jimmy Carter because Jimmy Carter was a direct response to Watergate. If you have Jimmy Carter and he wins, you have no Reagan revolution. So uh, the changes, the fundamental changes made in the history of the United States just cannot be overstated. I think that was a wonderful way to put this whole thing in perspective, Rick. Uh, thank you uh, for that. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. We are now down to the final five legislative days of the 2023 General Assembly session. Now, they don't actually gavel the session to a close until a week from tomorrow, uh, but actual uh, days burned as legislative days are a little uh, 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 put, we, they're put off because many of these days are uh, used for committee meetings, for negotiating uh, on different bills. Um, Patricia, I basically got that right, I think. Yes, signy die is March 29th. Today is March 20th. We have less than a full week. Oh, so week that's when... I'm sorry, that's Wednesday uh, then, the 29th. Yes, it's Wednesday, the 29th. Okay. Um, and uh, between now and then, we know from experience, but then we also just know from what's been happening at the General Assembly over the last week or so that surprises will ensue. And um, another key dynamic that we're watching right now is the um, relationship between the state house and the state senate. Both of those chambers have new leadership with House Speaker John Burns and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. And we are starting to see the rumblings of um, some friction between those two chambers. And to see that kind of friction with this kind of deadline looming to get all of these bills passed is something that we'll be keeping a really close eye on. It's a, it's an unusual dynamic, to be sure. Yeah. Um, Amy, uh, let's just talk very quickly about um, one bill, and that's sports betting. It didn't get passed. You know, four versions of it never got passed uh, uh, crossover day. It doesn't much matter because you can always attach it as an amendment to a measure that's got the same code section. So uh, in uh, uh, this case, they've got uh, uh, a way to bring it back. And Amy, since you've uh, overseen the intern program down there for a long time, you know how the sessions work. Um, if you attach a measure like sports betting, if you try to attach it to another bill, the chair, either the Senate president or the Speaker of the House, has to what we call rule it germane, that it is in the same code section. And that can sometimes be an obstacle that people have trouble overcoming. 
Yes. So certainly there are a lot of procedural ways in which that type of action can fail. And it can be done as an amendment. And sometimes what it is is actually a full substitution, which I think is actually what's happening here. They stripped out a bill that had been about um, derby racing and instead replaced it with sports betting. And so first it's got to get through rules. And then this would be an instance where because they have changed the bill so significantly, even if it passes that chamber, it would now also have to it would have to re go back to the original chamber to be passed as well, right? And it of course had fallen because it had it had changed so significantly. And so there's a lot of steps that are involved in this. Um, the other thing that's really interesting that's going on right now is. Um, that the Senate has actually passed a pretty significant number of bills sent to it from the House so far. Well, the House has only, I think, passed 12 bills. And Patricia can probably know this better than I, but I think so far the, the House has only passed 12 of the bills sent to it so far from the Senate. And so there is a huge amount of um, legislation still to be addressed, <laughs> many of these hot button issues. And it's a real question of sort of what is even going to get heard because it's not only that signee die is, of course, um, next Wednesday, but also that not even all of those days are legislative days. And so there really are very few days left to bring up any of these bills and get them passed, especially ones that would involve um, having to go through sort of multiple committees again and multiple chambers. Kendra, this sports betting bill, uh, which uh, clearly there's a lot of lobbying out there, which is why it's still alive in some way. Poor state rep Lisa Hagan. She's a Republican. I think she started serving a couple of sessions ago. She had a simple bill recognizing an event back home in Lyons, Georgia, calling it the official soapbox race of the state. And it's now been completely subsumed, Kendra, uh, by the sports betting bill. Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I, I think that, you know, we talked about this before. When we look at sports betting in the state of Georgia, there hasn't been a clear um, political benefit attached to the bill, which has been made it which has made it very difficult to get past um, some some of the, um, you know, the House and, and even the Senate in terms of support behind it. Um, again, when we're looking at even just affordability of education in the state, and if you tap, tap into that, that that state of, of, of Black America report that came out recently, right, there's nothing to connect this in a way that makes it compelling. So as a result, there's a lot of talk about sports betting in the state. And, and honestly, at some point, it's going to become elite, uh, it's going to become legal in our state. But right now, it just doesn't have the political muster support to get it passed and um again i i hate it for for uh, those who started off with earnest intent um having this this particular um bill passed um but right now i think it's going to die in the water rick uh you're no stranger to doing some lobbying in state capitals uh, around the south uh how intense is this lobbying campaign to get sports betting passed this session well um, it's intense, but, you know, and I'm certainly not going to accuse anybody of anything, but, you know, these are the kinds of bills that uh, a lot of legislators like in that it's quite lucrative because the, the interests have so much money to give. Uh, at the same time, everyone can be for the bill and the bill dies and you kind of scratch your head and go, well, how did that happen? 
because time kills more bills than legislators. So it's always great oh. to be able to go, I was for it, but time killed it. Come back next year. And oh, by the way, I've got a reelection campaign. Can you help me out? <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's a positive thing um, for uh, members of the General Assembly. Scary. Yeah. All again, right, you know. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. That's go ahead. It. No, no, finish. Okay. No, no. All right. I'm done. Patricia, let's talk about one of the hottest of the hot button issues under the Gold Dome. You wrote a column about it uh, the other day. It's the bill that would uh, prevent doctors, medical professionals from giving transgender medical services to uh, transgender young people. Um, and, And one of the things that you captured in your column about it was something that certainly we've talked about on this show is this is a very complicated issue. And lawmakers, for the most part, aren't doctors. Uh, they're uh, uh, not uh, skilled in understanding genetics, um, and yet they push forward on this. And as you say in the lead to your column, I always get worried in a committee hearing when a member of the state legislature presenting a bill doesn't seem to know exactly what he or she is talking about, making that very point. Yeah, so the purpose of my column was, um, you know, as you said, to point out that this is an area of, um, I think, even just American society that most people know very little about. It feels very new. People literally don't even have the vocabulary to discuss it. They don't know how to talk about it, what to say about it. And for the General Assembly to be passing laws banning um, pieces of healthcare that go along with that, that uh, many doctors, not all doctors, but many doctors have said this is the right way. These are the right things to offer kids who all have to have parental consent to move forward with um, the pieces that they're talking about banning. Um, it just all feels very premature. There was a suggestion at one point to have a study committee study the effect of puberty blockers on uh, children as they're administered. And my idea is that my thought is that they need a study committee to study this whole entire space um of uh of medicine of um of mental health of um just all sorts of things that i think this legislature truly does not know much about because most of us don't know much about it um but to be passing these laws um and just to hear the conversations around it now this is supported by some doctors in the legislature who are Republicans, mm-hmm. um, but many, many doctors have come forward to say, you guys just have no clue what you're talking about. Please do not pass this bill. Um, the biggest concern is the effect on mental health for um, minors who are seeking these kinds of treatments, um, Who and they're very concerned these kids are not gonna wait around until they're 18 to make these changes, um, me- meaning literally they're quite concerned they may commit suicide. So the stakes are so high um, for this, uh, small population, but so for this large group of lawmakers to come in, sort of like passing bills and banning things, it it just feels very strange, especially when they're telling parents, um, you know, you can decide what your kids, what books your kids are reading, but you can't decide what medical treatment that they're seeking. Yeah, I've said on the show before that Janice and I know four families that have dealt with transgender issues with their teenagers. And um, the parents and the children work together. Uh, the parents, uh, at first, uh, not sure to how to, what to make of this at all, um, but coming around and embarking on what ended up being a 
remarkable kind of journey for all of them. And, and it's interesting that we make the point on the show so frequently that why would the legislature interfere with parents' ability to work with their children on this? Um, Kendra, I want to do one last thing because we're going to talk about it in more depth tomorrow, but I'd really love to get your take on this. Um, the Urban League of Greater Atlanta uh, put out its first study of the state of black Georgia. And and while we've got a panel tomorrow that's going to go into it in more depth, I'd really, while, while we have you, I'd like to get your take. Among the findings is that the percentage of black students failing to read at a third grade level was 36%, a 25% over the, uh, a 25% increase over uh, the pande- pre-pandemic levels. Georgia's black population is 32% of the total. The State Department of Corrections reports 50% of inmates admitted in 2021. And the report goes on with a lot more findings. But Kendra, it strikes me this is a really important picture of uh, black Georgia. Absolutely. And, and I think as it was uh, detailed um, in the interview, it's a tale of two two Georgias, um, even amongst African-Americans, those who um, are above the poverty line and those who are below the poverty line. I think what a lot of this data speaks to is legislation um, and historic legislation that has in many respects been biased or has had some type of um, institutional racism bent in, in it. Um, I wrote a book in, in 2010 um, called African-American Politics, and I talk about uh, dollars and cents, S-E-N-S-E. And you, you found that historically from the Voting Rights Act of, of 65 forward to the election of Barack Obama, that African-Americans in every SES, socioeconomic status area, they lag behind their counterparts. I think even more so in Southern states, more so specifically in Georgia. And, and here's the thing, I, I agree with people saying, hey, African-Americans have to get more engaged in the political process, but I don't think people who are hungry want to vote, meaning we have to put economic equality at the forefront and then allow these other things to play themselves out. Uh, very quickly, because we're out of time, but, but Amy, we already knew about inequities in a general way. Um, and, but then there is data that support a lot of this, but to see this in this report specifically is a wake-up call. Um, It definitely is. There's also the reality that many of these inequities were very much so exacerbated during uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, We know that those in lower socioeconomic statuses were hit much harder. They were in positions where they didn't have the flexibility, for example, to work at home and things like that. And that disproportionately affected uh, black and brown uh, people. Uh, Another issue, which certainly we've gotten more attention to, but again, has been exacerbated recently, is motherhood mortality, uh, particularly in the black community. Uh, Yeah, thank you for pointing that out as well. We're out of time. Uh, for today's uh, show. Great way to start the week with Amy Steigerwalt, Patricia Murphy, Kendra King, Mamet, and Rick Dent. Thank you all so much for giving us an hour of your time today to talk about uh, the issues in political news. We're back, of course, again with a brand new show uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>